This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. And welcome to Noya House in Hollywood, where we are hosting our first ever live episode. This is very exciting. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. How are we doing, you guys? <laughs> well, this is how we record every week. It I is, think the thing indeed. that people need to know, I know, is that we're always in Los Angeles, where we all live. <laughs> in this hotel, all, actually. I yeah, I, I live in. Is this? The, this is not a hotel. This is a. a, a it's a cultural center. Oh, a cultural excuse, center. See, yeah. This is why you don't know. I live. But it's a cultural center where I live, <laughs> and you guys every week come and uh, we record together. It's great. Uh, we're really excited to be here. As we mentioned, we're going to be joined later with Lily Gladstone, the star of Killers of the Flower Moon, as well as Jacqueline West, the costume designer, and Julie O'Keefe, the consultant. Uh, but first, we have an award season that's going on. You guys might have heard about it. Um, if you're here in this room, you probably know that as we're talking on Tuesday, Oscar voting ends in a few hours. So if you have a ballot and you're an Oscar voter, get it submitted. If, hope you're not here if you haven't put it in yet. Um, so we're going to talk about award season and what's been going on and the award shows that we've been kind of inundated with over the past uh, week or so. I've never seen so many televised award shows in such a short period. It's funny to, to have the Emmys kind of dive bomb in. It's like, <laughs> we're talking about movies right now, Emmys. And they're like, no, 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 no. We, yep. we, we Give us Monday, please. Yep, exactly. They had Monday. Um, so we're going to start with the Critics' Choice Awards, which were on Sunday. David, you and I were there together in person at the May-December table, which was a delight. Um, I mean, David, you've been at all of these events kind of nonstop. Uh, your wardrobe uh, budget is just ballooning. Um, but what stood out to you about being at that event specifically? What kind of made that distinctive? Well, I got to sit at a table with Julianne Moore and Charles Melton, mm-hmm. so that stood out a little bit. Yeah. Two hideous people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I they were having kinda, a terrible time together, obviously. I kind of had to be like, oh my God, oh my God. Um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, yes, I did take Monday off as well for the Emmys, because it's been a lot. I think the main thing that stood out in terms of the show was the fact that the attendance was so strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, normally the Critics' Choice Awards are a little bit less fully attended among Oscar nominees, especially when it's such a starry year. But the fact is that because of the way the calendar shook out, especially with the SAG strike, you had all these shows occurring during voting or just before voting, which means maximum time for visibility. So you would see DiCaprio, Bradley Cooper, Every Name, Ryan Gosling, a very famous Ryan Gosling reaction shot already. They were all (laughs) there in the room. And so that meant when people won, you Mm -hmm. had a lot of big names, watching them win, which of course only adds to the resonance uh, in a few tight races, especially. Yeah. And you had been at the governors, the Academy Governors Awards a few days before and in your report kind of talking about like all of these luminaries in the room supporting each other. And then I was kind of watching it happen in real time where someone goes up and you see Bradley Cooper immediately stand up for a standing ovation and Emma Stone right there. Like the support felt so visible, which is something I don't think I would have known had I not seen it in person. Katie doesn't get to go to these things as often. So I I enjoyed watching her sort of observe the way the gravity of a room shifts when a Bradley Cooper gets up. Yeah. And everyone sort of slowly drifts toward them. Uh, Yeah, then that's that's where award season happens. That's where you really notice who is kind of owning the narrative of the year. And whether or not Bradley Cooper ends up winning, it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to be going in that direction. He's been a major story of the season. And that's where you see something like that. Yeah. I mean, Richard, you watched it not live in the room. but. Yeah, but he watches if- the CW every Sunday night. <laughs> well, I'm a stakeholder in the CW, yes. Yeah, so I, 
I, I, I ran all the DC shows. I was the yeah. Flash and all that. Yeah. yeah, you're very, very wealthy as a result. But what did you notice? I don't from- know why I'm here. I'm so rich. <laughs> I don't know why I'm here. What did you notice from what you saw from the Critics' Choice Awards? Well, I mean, not to to turn to the negative, but the Golden Globes were such a catastrophe. Oh, we're going to get there. Don't worry. We're getting there. <laughs> Where I was watching, it was the first award show in, I've been at Vanity Fair 10 years, and every year since then, I've been like, no, I have to cover these awards. I cannot watch with other people. I have to be alone at home, hermetic. And for whatever reason, the Golden Globes this year was the first time I like accepted an invite to go to a watch party, and I brought my laptop, so I was like, so I could write. Yeah. And then it was like that. It was like Joe Coy. And I was like, this is like the craziest. I, I need to like leave immediately and just like <laughs> report write to the about war this. room. It's an emergency. <laughs> so that was a bad precedent setting for the January award show. And then like I thought the critics' choice, like Chelsea Handler, who used to date uh, Joe Coy, uh, and made a joke sort of about him. I thought she did a good, solid, competent job and, you know, made fun of the movies, but also celebrated the movies. And then the winners were kind of actually in line with I think where we're, we're sort of thinking that the Oscars could go yeah um, so it felt like a very sort of solid lily pad that this campaign could like leap off of where the yeah. Golden Globes felt a little more chaotic not in the winners but, yeah. but the hosting kind of made that night weird yeah, it did yeah. feel comfortable in a way. And even when there are like winners, you know, I think we're going to talk about the best actor race and how, I mean, I think David and I were sitting there being like, I don't know who's going to win this. And Julianne Moore had her predictions, which we will she not did. share, but <laughs> some of us were surprised. Julianne Moore has voted a straight Super Mario Brothers ticket. <laughs> she was devastated. Yeah. Jack Black did not make <laughs> she, the short list. She yeah. stole my idea, unfortunately. Um, but it felt very comfortable because it's, you know, even when there's a little bit of a surprise, like obviously everyone's really deserving. Obviously everyone's getting their standing ovations. It was, it did feel like the the car was back on the track in some ways. Yeah, I think so. And I think the speeches were good. And yeah. and we had this interesting early part of the season where like, I'm, you know, part of the New York Film Critics Circle and we gave Charles Melton the supporting actor award and, and he won elsewhere for that. And then like, but the thinking was always like, sure, that's lovely. But like, Robert Downey Jr. is sort of lying in wait backstage to like <laughs> take, you know, this. And then that's what's been happening. Yeah. And his speeches have been good. And, you know. Like, and you know, it's going to, that's the thing is when you get someone who's like that big of a movie star, you kind of know what you're getting in for. Whereas Dave, I joined Randolph, who's been giving just endless speeches and we expect to be like, she comes very prepared. She's kind of introducing herself to people. And I feel like she's introducing herself as a consummate professional, which is exactly what she is. It's working really yeah. well, I think. Yeah. Well, it's that Yale education, you know, she's, she's, yeah, we she's do love talking about Yale when we're talking about these people. Um, I wanted to ask about the America Ferrera speech, actually, because mm-hmm. she didn't win a competitive award, but she got the honorary award. And I think it was about halfway through her speech where I was like, oh, voting is still happening. She is in the mix for supporting actress, but it's like it's a competitive race that I mean, it went over so well in the room. Like she did wonderfully. You could also do worse than have Margot Robbie, who is the story of this film year in a lot of ways, yeah. introduce her, which yeah. she did. And I think that allowed everybody to really sit up straight in their seat. No, this was a moment. Um, she knocked that speech out of the park. Mm-hmm. Even the little technical glitches that happened with the teleprompter, <laughs> she, which there were a few of those throughout the night. Sure. Uh, it is the CW, so what can what can we expect, really? Um, that'll be my last winner. How dare you? Charles Melton will not be happy with me. Um, so in in that sense, you know, that race is so kind of slippery right now. You have a lot of different possibilities because you have people like Penelope Cruz who got mm-hmm. a SAG nomination yep. for Ferrari. You have a couple people on this BAFTA long list who may be nominated later this week. Uh, and that has a lot of overlap with the Academy. So America Ferreira hasn't shown up at a ton of places, but she's a big face of a big contender. Yeah. And when she gives a speech like that, where everyone in that room, a lot of Academy members, I'm not saying the show was you know that widely watched, but even just the industry buzz, I think was really strong around yeah, it. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, and it reminds people that she had a really big moment in that movie, mm-hmm. a, a, a moment that has carried through, obviously, and that could take her a long way. Yeah. Yeah, and she, and she has this monologue that I, I guess you could look at as sort of defining one ethos of the film. And like Beatrice Strait all those years ago won an Oscar for one monologue, you know, like there is precedent for it in a way that I think that like the Academy voters have a little bit extra time than all these other awards bodies did who did not give her America Ferrera nominations. But like, I don't know. I just think that like with that sort of special moment that happened and they're still in voting. Yep. uh, A few more hours left. Yeah. A few more hours (laughs) left. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that I guess that would be a really litmus test of like how much the Academy loves Barbie. And I think they 
probably are going to like it a lot. So yeah, well, that's the question. I feel like we've talked about this in other weeks. Like the we've been fearing Barbie snobbery among the Academy, and I think what was telling at the Critics Choice Awards is not just Barbie had that moment. It had another. It won for best comedy, but the, it wasn't on the air because they do that. They give out awards during commercial breaks, which is but they, strange. They went too fast, so they needed to fill the time. And so Chelsea <laughs> Handler made a wonderful bit out of needing to give. Uh, Barbie, it's moment. Yeah. Which kind of gave away it wasn't winning Best Picture, um, which I had thought. You think was... she knew that? You think she knew the results and it wasn't going to win Best well, Picture? Well, I'm sure well, it was she's worth... the only critic who votes on it. Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea, I'm sure. Chelsea Handler is the only. <laughs> Critics' Choice stands for Chelsea. Did you, you not know that? <laughs> no, she reads all the that. envelopes right yeah. before. Um, no, she I, I also decides the Tony Award. <laughs> So I think that she had an understanding probably through production uh, of where the night was going. Sure. And also by that point, Oppenheimer had sort of started to take all the technical awards it is, as it has done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I don't know what you were going, where you're going with that. Oh, just, I mean, thinking about the presence of Barbie and how like Chelsea Handler really went out of her way to make it even more visible than it already was, which like, you know, it, I, I'm just Ken one, which obviously warmed my heart. That's my... Created a meme, uh, Ryan Gosling reacting to that. Right? I was in the bathroom line. I missed that entire thing. You're always in the bathroom when memes are happening. <laughs> the, uh, who was it who was in the bathroom when she won a Golden Globe? Christine Lottie. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Hello. 1997, <laughs> I want to say. But no, it was like an objectively good night for Oppenheimer and winning all those awards that wins Best Picture. Christopher Nolan got in a great... He was the original burn on the CW, actually. You guys are just following in Christopher <laughs> right. Nolan's footsteps. Right, right. Um, well, and Christopher Nolan directed all the episodes of Gossip Girl. Yeah. <laughs> the original, not the Max version. <laughs> no, no. The original. But it did make it feel like both of those films are very visible. But Killian Murphy didn't win Best Actor, which is yet another twist in a race that I'm kind of obsessed with how tight it feels. And our friend Paul Giamatti loved talking about In-N-Out. He knows his moment. He gave the best speech of the night. You think, think so? Yeah, I do. And I think that um, it made it very clear to me that this is a character actor who is so beloved in this industry that if he could win there over bigger movies, I think, with that group, even a maestro, like it's Bradley Cooper. Sure. Um, I feel like SAG is a place where he is really going to pull it out. I mean, that's mm -hmm. his that's his crowd, that's his crew. Uh, and then if you figure if Killian Murphy wins BAFTA, which I think is still very likely, you have a really, really exciting two-horse race uh, for Best Actor, kind of in the same way that we did last year with Brendan Fraser and Austin Butler. True. Um, and I don't, I don't really, who do you guys think is going to pull it out right now? Didn't we do this last week? <laughs> I made everyone say. And then something changed. <laughs> are, you, are you comparing Austin Butler to Paul Giamatti? Yeah, I think they have Direct a lot They've yeah. had the same career, basically. You know, Austin actually turned down the holdovers, and I'm not talking about the Dominic Cecil. Paul Giamatti was going to be was going to be Elvis. <laughs> I do think that Paul Giamatti. You know, we we talk on this podcast a lot about the sort of like, does a speech tour win you an award? Yeah. Like, like if if you win an award early in the season and your speech is really good, are people putting you down for the winner uh, because they want to hear you again? Yeah. And I, I don't know if they're you know we. We're all making this up, but like, I do think that like Giamatti has been really charming, and also kind of not 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 bringing so much attention to it, but kind of reminding people that like he got fucked over for Sideways, like he did not get nominated for that. Are we which allowed is to swear on Noah House? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought know? we were in America. The, the, the way we did not have an answer. For are we not? Are we in communist Russia? Uh, no, but uh, but like I just think his speeches have been really charming yeah. and like really reminding people that like oh this is an actor who for whatever reason has not gotten this kind of major major attention in his entire you know almost three decade career, and that narrative is really compelling in a way that maybe Killian Murphy, who also has had a long career, but he's like British. He's like been doing that stuff. Like he's not one of us. Like, you know, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like you, you think about American actors winning it. Daniel Day-Lewis, Gary Oldman. I mean, those this classic the American Fra actors. But this was the Brendan Fraser thing last year. That was someone they knew. But yeah. Brendan Fraser didn't win. <laughs> As right? you, as he you did, predicted. Right? <laughs> oh God, did he win? <laughs> Our memories just get wiped at the end of every award season. It turns out. Um, I don't think Richard will ever forget when he won that Oscar. Yeah. Well, before we get into kind of the mechanics of these award shows and the hosts and everything, I mean, David, as I was saying, you've been at endless events all the time. You have been telling me that uh, people keep bringing up the zone of interest to you, and I don't even remember who it was, but we asked someone at the Critics' Choice what their favorite movie was, and they immediately said zone of interest, and I was like, oh, it's all happening in front of me. What else are you just? Hearing about what feels like it's in the air in a way that we might not see at these award shows, but is getting that base of support. 
Um, I'm not just saying this because we have uh, some wonderful people from the movie here, but I think Killers of the Flower Moon has had a really interesting week. It's mm-hmm. on Apple now, um, and it's being rediscovered in some ways. Yep. It's a movie that has stuck around since Cannes, and really any time a movie gets brought up um, at this point, it's worth paying attention to because yeah. some, those movies that have been talked about for so long, uh, it doesn't always last that way, even if they end up getting nominated. That's definitely one. Um, American Fiction is a movie that I think has a lot of support, especially like in Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, there are people, I think there was a big MGM event thrown for that movie with Daniel Craig and Barbara Broccoli yep. in attendance. Do not discount the power of that. Um, oh, we should talk about Origin and I, before we run out of time. I'm right sorry, I'm so sure you didn't miss it. We <laughs> have to talk about Origin. Can we talk about Origin? Frances Fisher, her Frances power Fisher has gotten back on the case. Yeah. She's my new like dream. Andrea Riceboro was like, "Girl, do it again." We haven't done a we haven't done a roundtable interview in a long time. But if we get Frances we Fisher, really we should. all need to speak. Frances to her Fisher is well. the most powerful person <laughs> for two months in Los Angeles. Frances <laughs> Fisher is like, "All right, <laughs> yeah, or two all right, weeks, everybody, honestly. clear, clear away." I'm. Should we give some I'm, context? Yes, please. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, Frances Fisher is the president of Los Angeles, <laughs> mayor, governor. Yeah. yeah. So Francis Fisher, of course, was a an instrumental figure last year in the a great actor in Titanic. Yes, yes. was married to Clint Eastwood for a long uh, time. I- industry icon, like a lo- Los Angeles icon. And the Academy Board of Governors member. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely in the Academy. We yeah. know. No, no, like a, she was like a, a higher <laughs> no, yes, up yes. in the Academy. Uh, as was Ava DuVernay, notably. She right. Was, um, so she was a huge factor in the two Leslie last minute push last year and corralled a lot of big names in Hollywood to see the movie, to post about the movie. Uh, and that ultimately led to a, a shock nomination for Andrea Riseborough. And so there were some new social media guidelines put out as a result of that. A lot of controversy because of Riseborough pushing out Daniel Deadweiler, Viola Davis, uh, notably. And so there was a question of if something like that would happen again this year, because on the one hand, it worked so shockingly for a tiny movie with a giant heart. It sure was. For those who know, they know. <laughs> um, but also that was so clearly a little icky in terms of the optics of it yeah. and, and how it felt it very clubby. Up. Have yes. they not used tiny movie with a giant heart as a tagline for a Kevin Hart movie? <laughs> <laughs> they should. They should. Sorry. If you're Talking that one place. for later. Yeah. Um, and it came up with Origin this year. I went on Francis Fisher's Twitter on like Friday, and it was like <laughs> you pretending you don't know exactly where he went. Tweets retweeted about Origin in a row. I mean, it, it is it became her obsession, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And there were some jokes about it, like, oh, she's at it again. And then suddenly, uh, there's Holland Taylor, who was a big, uh, and Sarah Paulson, who were big supporters of Andrea Riseborough, posting about it. And then I saw, was it yesterday? Uh, that Angelina Jolie hosted yeah. a screening with Anjanou Ellis, yeah. um, who is the star of the film. And I think just take stepping back a little bit, Anjanou Ellis is brilliant in this. She's so wonderful. Yeah. And it is appropriate, if maybe a little cynical, that the effort is going towards a black actress who deserves to be in the conversation isn't after what happened last year. Mm-hmm. I can see how that might have played out. It makes a lot of sense. Um, but she absolutely deserves to be a part of that conversation. Um, and I think I mean, I think she can get nominated at this point. As we've learned, a very small batch of really passionate voters can get you through. In the uh, actors brand specifically. That's what's so interesting yes, about it. I think the idea that this little effort, and there are a lot of actors at this point who have posted about the film, who have really encouraged people to uh, v- not vote for it. That's the difference because they can't do that anymore as directly. Um, but to see it. To see it. Come yeah. on. Well, wasn't that something? Just see it. You just you need to see it. You see need to experience this right movie on the big screen. Vote. But see wasn't it. that something that Ava had talked about about the idea of just trying to get visibility for the movie? Like I feel like she'd been really frank about it. So it, they are answering a need that was existing that we were aware of. Yes, um, and I think she's achieved that. I think yeah. now the question is: it has the visibility. It got it at the perfect time. You have a lead contender who was nominated and supporting a few years ago, who's very deserving. Uh, how far can that go? Yeah. yeah, she's a real industry. Anjanou Ellis has been around forever. If you guys all look under your seats, Frances Fisher is <laughs> she's down there. Um, no, I think that would be exciting. I mean, the movie is uh, an interesting experiment origin. It doesn't quite work, I don't think, entirely. But, like, Anjanou Ellis is undeniably like this. I mean, she's narrating a lot of the movie. So you're kind of with her for two-plus hours. And it's an impactful performance regardless of its weird experiments and the movie's weird experiments in form. And like, is it a documentary? Is it a narrative film? Whatever. Uh, and yeah, I think you're right, David, like that is Francis Fisher's terrible machine working towards something interesting and like good. Not that Andrea Riceboro's wasn't, she was very good in, right. in, in yeah. her movie, but like it, 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 
it's interesting to see like the reaction to what happened last year kind of retrain its gaze onto something else. And then Frances Fisher in that kind of accidental thing and, and her cohort realizing like, oh, wait, I have power here. So let me kind of redirect that power into a different direction, which is kind of, in a weird way, the narrative of a lot of Hollywood. It's like, okay, yep. so we have this ability to highlight people, to rep, to mm-hmm. whatever. L- let's figure out how to like put that power to to use uh, in a productive way. Yeah. Do you think she's going to get in on Janu Ellis? This uh, is our last episode before nominations um, come out, which is crazy. Uh, so well, I'm a lock for nominations. So we'll, let's, that's the latest four people left. And no, th- no. you can thank Francis Fisher for that, by the way. <laughs> I paid her $10 million. Uh, got to cut that. Yeah. Brett, you got to cut uh, that. No, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't maybe. I, I think maybe it happened too late. That's what we thought about Andrea Riceboro. I guess I guess it was kind of the same time. Yeah, I don't it? think yeah. it's too late. I think it's one interesting dynamic with this movie is there's a lot about Ava DuVernay and what she achieved right. with the movie and is is it targeted enough? It kind of splits the vote because like people are like, oh wait, are we? Is this campaign to nominate Anjanou Ellis? Is my or ballot is it just origin for <laughs> right? Is it a straight origin ticket like Julian Moore's Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> uh, like how does that work? I mean, because Ava, you know, famously was not nominated for Selma, yeah. which was crazy. Yeah. Uh, in in its year uh and yeah so maybe the campaign is more for Ava DuVernay than it is for Anjanou Ellis but that sounds like a much yeah. steeper climb yeah those directors don't live here <laughs> yeah so those directors want to nominate a bunch of Europeans who uh you never see coming which is what right. happens every year right. you come to the New Yorker radio hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval terms apply um very predictably we've talked longer about the race than i thought we were going to Uh and i don't (laughs) want to keep our guests waiting forever so i'm going to pivot abruptly to talking about these shows yeah um how are the emmys how do we feel about uh, we want to talk about the emmys they just happen as we're recording this and and feel like as the project of award shows and our interest in them like it is interesting to watch them even if the winners themselves are not relevant to oscar season and i was really interested in what they did with anthony anderson and then also the the nostalgia and the bits and the way they really lean into that for the Emmys. I thought it really worked. And it's the kind of thing that I think the Oscars are terrified of. Well, what works is that awards shows, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, are corny. They're, they're like glitzy long evenings where rich people celebrate themselves. (laughs) And we (laughs) watch like, yes, like, you know, and like, but we all have, entered into that social contract. Yeah. I don't like when the Emmys or the Oscars or whatever other show tries to be cool and be like, we're going to lower the stage. Because, you know, my contention is Mm -hmm. the year that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, that was a low stage. If there had been eight more steps like there normally (laughs) are, that never would have happened. It never would have happened. If Will, because Will Smith on step four would have been like, what am I doing? And, and, and you are right. You are right. But it was only two steps. And so it was like, so having dinner, dinner right there. Just, yeah. No, like no. we've all had two step decisions. And I think four step decisions are, you know, more reliable. Um, but what are we but, talking about? <laughs> what I'm saying is, I think the tinkering with the award shows, like obviously the COVID era, like they had to sure. figure out something. But in general, the, the, these producers are trying to like be cool and like, oh, we're going to make it feel like a club or whatever. Like, yeah. No one wants that shit. We just want standard, high stage, golden set, you know, mm-hmm. setting, whatever, award shows. Yep. And I think the Emmys kind of did that. Yep. And they also were corny with the sets. You know, we're bringing about the like all of the, the old TV show sets and have the cast reunite. And like yeah. we're celebrating TV. It was a, it, the Emmys was a show about shows. And I think that worked. Yeah. 
It was a real contrast, too, with how the Emmys often run on a particular network because they always alternate between the four broadcast networks. And they'll have, like, the stars of this strange Fox procedural that you've never heard of who were paired. And it's like, what is this? And they're presenting Best Actress. And it's like, this doesn't quite have the weight that it probably should. Um, But this year, they really did away with that. And it was like... Every presenting team felt meaningful and interesting. Mm-hmm. Like bringing the cast of Martin together was so surprising and interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think that those kinds of pairings contributed to Quinta Brunson being three times as emotional as she probably yes, would have been absolutely. a year yeah. ago. And Carol um, Burnett being and right there too. The cast exactly. of Martin, the cast of Martin, very pointedly being like, "We never got this kind of awards attention," right. and like, and kind of like sh- shining a light on the Emmys not so great history was also instructive and good in a a way my edit would maybe be that next year you bring the it's always sending philadelphia cast out and have them do it rather than doing that bit twice in one year but it was nice to see (laughs) them there at least right um but it was a challenge show from the beginning it was pushed so many months nobody's talking about tv right now it feels like the movies are what's in the conversation the ratings were really really bad (laughs) i missed that yeah they were really bad um were were they opposite a football game or something yeah and Apparently, the Republican primary is off and running. I oh, interesting. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, yeah, that started last night. Um, yeah. And I think that when you have that against you, it, it maybe encourage them to think a little bit outside the box, to actually pay homage to what they were celebrating in a way that felt significant, that could maybe provide a blueprint for how they can move forward. Um, As to your question as to whether the Oscars can follow something like that, um, they did try to do a few reunions a few years ago, and it was kind of confusing and overpraised. I think that was the Will Smith year? Don't look at me. I don't (laughs) don't know. know. I Um, miss the... the, We don't have Google in front of us. I I I I miss the past winners giving the testimony to each nominee. Oh my God, that was Those things went on for eight minutes and everyone hated them and we were like, more, please. Yeah, we were at least like one in the morning and they're not, (laughs) haven't even gotten to costume design and we're like, yes. (laughs) But I I just, I just think the pomp and the circumstance is the whole point, you know? And I think that like the Oscars this year will be fine, whatever. Um, You know, we talk about hosts and it's like, well, like you watched John Mulaney do the Governor's Awards yeah. and he was so good and it was like that kind of right mix of like highbrow humor but also kind of silliness and celebrating movies but making fun of the movies like that's a delicate balance to strike and I thought that Anthony Anderson yes. did that well with the shows I thought that Chelsea Handler did that obviously Joe Coy was amazing <laughs> well no this is a great point because Joe Coy has spent the last week basically saying Hollywood's a bunch of softies and uh, that well yeah <laughs> but what's True, fascinating but. is immediately after that, you had John Mulaney playing to almost the exact same audience at the Governor's Awards, who, and I was there, they were laughing hysterically. They had a great time. He's not like a nice comic who's just going to play nice with everybody. He's not the meanest guy in the world, but, sure. you know, he's throwing some barbs. Uh, and then you had Chelsea Handler, who does her Chelsea Handler thing, and she can be a little raunchy and, and do yeah. her usual shtick, and it played really well. Mm-hmm. And then you can have an Anthony Anderson who is not as typical of a comedian host, and he's a little bit more in with the performers, and he felt very present, which I appreciated because the host so often disappears uh, yeah. after their opening monologue. And again, here was a model for how you can do this. And to have do, to do jokes and also participate in bits like what he, like yes. he did. Yeah. So to have three different hosts, really distinctive appeals, senses of humor, all do a good job tells me that it is possible that yeah. maybe not everyone should be running away from this gig, which is the headline. I just think with, with the Golden Globes at all, like we lived through this crazy year where Barbie was the biggest hit of the year was the cultural phenomenon of like kind of a fucking half generation. Like it was a huge deal. And all of that finally in a televised award show, like let's, let's have this comedian like distill all of that, all of the success and whatever. And it's where are you going with this, Richard? The word, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to the word booby. <laughs> like that was Joe Coy, like gathered all of the, the cultural information was like boobies. And it's like, mm, like, no, it's like I no. would be better at hosting that show than he was. Like, pay me the five hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah. No, he probably did not get paid that. But 
I mean, we know what we're getting with Jimmy Kimmel. He's hosting the we're Oscars. We're getting paid five hundred grand yeah, each exactly. to do this right now. But yeah. um, like Jimmy Kimmel's not going to change what he does. And, I, and I've always and that's he, fine. And yeah. I think he strikes a great tone. Like I've always been a fan of that. But it's the like the, the structure around it, the building sets for the reunions, uh, the Emmys. That I thought worked so well to kind of make you understand what you're looking at. The it, it came at the expense of the acceptance speeches, and I was wondering. I don't actually know how you guys feel about it. I think Anthony Anderson's mom was great. I kind of enjoyed her presence in all and of she it. She only did it twice. Yeah, and yeah. She, yeah. you know, cuts off Jennifer Coolidge, who won last. Last year, um, but the, I mean the short, the speeches were relentlessly short, but people didn't seem to mind. I mean, a lot of them had won the night before the Critics' Choice Awards, as we saw, David. That is my answer. <laughs> but the, do we feel like maybe acceptance speeches should get shorter? It feels like sacrilege to say. No, because but... like you, I want the mechanism in place that like keeps the show running on time, but also for Melissa Leo to. I, you know, do you know Melissa Leo is still giving her acceptance speech? <laughs> It's been 10 years. Well, Renee, Renee Zellweger is still naming people. Yeah. Just like as our laundry yeah. list. Right? Melissa Leo is standing in the Dolby. Thing. No, <laughs> I, 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 you want behind. you want to allow room for that kind of rambling, exciting moment. I mean, maybe only a few people think it's exciting, but um, the Emmys did feel a little bit like mili- like regimented, yeah. like in a, in a way that um, it felt less loose and sort of exciting because everyone felt very on mission. Yeah. Um, and you don't want the Oscars to be that. Yeah. It's a kind of... It's a balance. And honestly, I think it's a matter of feeling it out a little bit. Like with somebody like Cheryl Lee Ralph and Emmys from the year before this one, that went on for a little while. And it was by far the best moment of the night when she sang her Mm -hmm. speech. And it was so, it was like breathtaking. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like that on an awards show before. Um, But I think having the standard of don't talk too long uh, and being able to react in the moment if someone's doing something a little bit more meaningful, uh, maybe giving them the space to do it. I, I say that, and I know it's basically impossible to do that, and you right. have really awkward cutoffs, and it doesn't go sure. well. But, but Soderbergh started that precedent when, when he did the Oscars in in um, 2021 at the train station in LA, where he was like, I'm producing the show, I'm directing the show, uh, I have instructed all the winners to not thank individual names. No one wants to hear the name of your agent or whatever. Just share an anecdote, like say something personal, and the Emmys this year, on two or maybe more occasions, they had like Quinta Brunson when she won. Like yeah. there was like there was like a, a thing on the bottom of the screen that was like she would also like to thank. They had quite that a few. That feels like an interesting thing to sort of implement where it's like, okay, don't we don't Kevin Hubain has been thanked enough. <laughs> so is his brother. Never enough. Uh so what if we just had like Anne Hathaway or whoever like winning an Oscar just like speaking from the heart, not having to go through the list of like and my lawyer and whatever, like I don't know. I mean, Quinta Brunson had that, but they also gave her time. Like, she was emotional. Yeah. They knew to lean into that. Like, it yeah. did seem like it right. worked. Like, Anthony Anderson's mom was not going to pull her off stage. But then when, like, Jennifer Coolidge is accepting for the second year in a row, she's like, okay, fine, I'll play into the bit and go. So they read the room well. There has to be an intuitive producer who's, like, actually, like, engaged during the broadcast who's like, cue the play out music for this person and don't and, and hold it for this person. Yeah. You know? I think Have this ever, team is yeah. very intuitive. Have you ever watched the video of the control room when Cuba Gooding Jr. won? This, it's on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. It's like from within oh, the control yes, room yeah. where the guy's like, cut to that camera, cut to that camera. And Cuba Gooding Jr. is like talking louder and louder and in the control yeah. room, they're louder and louder. It's incredible. It's like watching ballet happening. Because you could never play that off. Like that was no, amazing. No, well, well, they were, yeah. I think. And then he just kind of kept talk, oh, talking over it. It made it look like the hardest job in the world, honestly. I, I well, let's try it next year. <laughs> let's put our hats in the ring. Um, I think we're going to take a quick pause, and uh, Richard and Dave are going to go to the bar or wherever it is that you go, and we're going to welcome in our guest from Kills of the Flower Moon. So, uh, thank you for being here for Little Golden Man Live. <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> Bye. Hi. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. <laughs> So, we're welcoming Lily Gladstone, the star of Killers of the Flower Moon, Jacqueline West, the costume designer of Killers of the Flower Moon, and Julie O'Keefe, the Osage clothing consultant of Killers of the Flower Moon. Hi, you guys. Hello. Thank, thank you for joining us here. How's everybody doing? You're at the, the final gas of many, many conversations about this movie for now. How's everybody feeling? Great. I'm just happy to be with these two. Yeah. Well... Julie, when you have been um, giving interviews with Jacqueline before, you talked about how you were brought into this movie for, I think, 10 days to be a clothing consultant. But it seems like from the very beginning, you were like, mm-hmm, 10 days? Like, I think this is going to be a much longer process. So how, how did that process work where you and Jacqueline began working together on this and, and build the partnership that you have now? Well, 
you know, when you start getting into the different layers of the silhouettes that we have in our clothing, and those silhouettes have not changed for over 150 years. And so really sitting down when you see how many multiple ways a man can wear a blanket and how many multiple ways a woman can wear a blanket or a shawl. And we have three different types just for that type of covering. Then you have something like the wedding coat. And I just knew that it was going to be a situation where you're looking at particular research photos of which Jackie had thousands. But within those photographs of these you know, historic Osages, you're really looking at the subtleties of who they are and how they're representing themselves out into the world. And so if you have someone like a Chief Bonnie Castle, he's going to be wearing this very long style blanket, but it tells you that he's a man of importance. You're looking at Molly. And so she is in this situation where you have Lizzie Q and then you have Anna and then you have Molly, then you have Rita and Minnie. And so you're watching a family where this world has been forced in on them. And so for Lizzie Q, because at that time, um, she and her husband both were raised on the prairie and we lived off the land. The value of money was nothing to us because we traded and really hunted for everything for all of our needs. And so um, you see the history of that trade through people that would come across our lands. And people are always talking about how it's a peace pipe, but that's what schools tell you. The reality is that we were our own border patrol. We had our own borders. We wanted to know the same things that we want today with the, with the borders we have now. How long are you going to be here? Why are you coming across? What is your reason? And so a lot of that you see in the history of the clothing. So you've got Lizzie Q, who's traditional. And so she's coming in with these children. And they basically came in, the government did, and said, we will either cut your rations or you need to send your children to boarding schools. The boys would go to military schools. The girls would go to Catholic girls' schools, most of them, within Osage anyway. So what would happen is, you know, these girls have come back and you see each one of these young women now representing themselves within a world that they're trying to fit into. They're trying to find their place and a safe place. So you have Anna, who's completely decided to go into the 1920s contemporary world. And so, you know, from the photographs that Jacqueline had, we could tell that that is where she had really put her place in this pl in this world. Then you look at Molly, who is identifying in her heart with Osage. This is who she is. And she understands this really in her being. So what's happening is she's coming out and she's representing herself in these Osage clothing, which is all traditional. Then you have the other two girls, Rita and Minnie. Rita and Minnie are committing to a contemporary style, but then what they're doing is bringing these blankets and these shawls in, and we wore those for modesty, and they wore them in different ways for different situations that would be going on, a funeral, a baby naming, a, you know, these certain, and so they have certain things that they're wearing for these particular situations, and each one of those is going to be placed on them and folded differently for whatever they're doing. Molly goes to see Pitts Beatty. She's wearing a shawl. She walks in to talk business with him. Those shawls are basically covering us for modesty. And she's letting him know, I've come to do business with you. You have a delegation of Osages. They are all going, men and women, to Washington, D.C. to talk to President Coolidge. And so what's happening is you have this power suit that's really being worn. And they're walking in mass to let them know, and now I'm talking about the White House, we are here to do business with you. We are wearing our very best and we're showing you who we are. And you can imagine 60 or 70 natives who you really aren't familiar in ever seeing brown skin that often. And they're walking in mass up to the White House. And I can't imagine what they must have thought at the White House when they saw them coming in. And so they're making a statement. And so we do those same things today when we go on our own visits to the White House. 
I've been to the White House three times in my ribbon work blanket. I used to live there. And it's one of those where I'm honoring the person that I'm with, but I'm also telling them I'm here as an individual showing you who I am. And that's what we were portraying in the movie. Um, I think that's a pretty great sense of, you know, to, I could ask Jacqueline what Julia brought, but it seems like she just showed us what she brought in terms of knowledge. Um, but I was really struck what you said before about how when you're building costumes for characters, you build them a closet, like what Molly would have had in her closet and kind of, Jacqueline, what I think you said is that, you know, Lily, you'd be able to come and say, like, what would she wear in this instance? And for you guys, that's a lot of freedom for you to give to the actors. But also, Lily, I imagine as an actor, it helps you immensely with building who the character is of having that selection put in front of you by someone like Jacqueline. How does that work? Yeah, we would talk about it quite a bit. And then I remember at some point through the process after Jackie and I had had these conversations, usually came down to the shoes. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jackie had these gorgeous shoes built that Molly would have had made custom with the money that she had. And, you know, the shoes that you wear in town when you're going to go meet with your guardian, you wear the closed toe heel, the um, European or American style shoe. And then um, also just tracking how Molly was feeling with her illness, with diabetes and with um, with her pregnancy and, you know, when the mocks would go on. So a lot of times that's kind of what the conversation would come down to. Um, yeah, and then kind of discussing, all right, when are we... When are we stylizing a beautiful? What was that for the for Minnie's funeral? What was the was it Ukrainian? Was it Hungarian? The um, the shawl. The, the shawl. shawl. It was Hungarian. But it was also um, there were a lot of conversations uh, about how you would wear the shawl, and right. and mainly once if you're working with a consummate actress like Lily, they really find the character very early on. And I've always said that costume was the bridge between the actor and the character. And once you really get to know that character, like I feel I got to know Lily, uh, I got to know Molly through Lily and, and how she was becoming her. They dress themselves. You make a closet, like we were talking about, with all the, the possibilities that she would have had at her disposal in Osage country, and what skirt she would have, what just by who she was, that she was traditional, what her taste would be in blankets. And then it kind of just came together. The character dresses themselves. One of my, um, one of my more fond memories is on our last scene, like our last scenes of shooting, Jackie had built a shirt for me, a ribbon shirt entirely out of silk, for me as my wrap gift with Molly stitched in and I still have oh. it. But me, I walk in my trailer and I see this beautiful shirt hanging up and then this other beautiful shirt hanging up. I'm like, oh, she's letting me choose. So I ended up choosing the shirt that Jackie built for me as my wrap gift and I'm wearing it in one of the last scenes. <laughs> and I think wardrobe is uh <laughs> wardrobe's very much where I found the last elements of Molly. I mean, and usually it is with um, any character that you play. And I remember the first fitting that I had with Julie. You were you were tying me into one of the, the broadcloth skirts with the butterfly pleat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I feel like there's a perception a lot of people have of Native people, especially if you're like enthralled by us from kind of like a new agey perspective that everything's loose and free. And it's just like, no, we're very protocol people, very particular protocol people, very proper, especially traditionalists. And I mean, I, I don't know how you guys wear five layers of wool broadcloth in the middle of the summer, but you do it. <laughs> but I remember, Gladly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, eventually, you know, you're, you sweat enough, you've got a natural cooling system, and then <laughs> I would so much rather wear that much wool than that much polyester in the summer, I'll say that. Um, but yeah, Julie tied me in after I was wrapped in the broadcloth skirt, which is a blanket folded a number of ways, and then you're tied into it and I was kind of just slumped and, and then suddenly my spine was straight um the way you have to hold your shoulders to hold the blanket is almost in like first position like ballet first position 
And I think I said to you, like, oh, I, I, I get how this nation birthed America's first prima ballerina. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maria Tallchief from Fairfax, Oklahoma, was Osage. She was married to George Balanchine, co-founded the New York City Ballet. She was America's first prima ballerina, Ballet Russe. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Well, we have a clip from the movie that we can share that shows uh, from the wedding scene, which is, you know, some of the most stunning looks in the entire film. So we can let everybody look at that and then I'll ask you guys about it. Molly. Ernest. I've known Molly and her sister since they were little girls running around making a lot of trouble. We ate one more Molly's dear departed father, Nikaise Wai, was a dear, dear friend of mine, a beloved friend of the heart. He always used to tell the white men just to call him Jimmy, but I always called him by his proper name. Nakaise Wai. We had great respect for each So, Julie, before we got started, we were talking about that coat, which I think is the absolute showstopper in that entire scene and how those wedding coats still have a really prominent life and prominent role in Osage life today. But the origin of them, I think, is fascinating because I think, Jackie, you said it felt like you found Marie Antoinette in a horse opera all of a sudden. It's just like, you know, such a beautiful, striking image. But, Julie, can you talk about why for this period for Molly and Ernest's wedding, why that wedding coat would be part of the ceremony? Well, the history of the wedding coat is actually uh, dates all the way back to a delegation of Osages that went to see Thomas Jefferson. And they went in. Um, it was a U.S. was a new country. And so they were showing their power and might. And so um, this delegation goes in. And as we're, you know, sitting down and, and of course, with a translator and they're talking and, and um, basically Thomas Jefferson is really showing them. Uh, what they have, and the, they're discussing business, the chief looks over and he sees this military coat on this general that's standing next to him, to Thomas Jefferson. And he really admires it. And so when they get ready to leave, Thomas Jefferson looks at that general and says, take that coat off and give it to him. So the man takes the coat off and he gives it over as really like a diplomatic gift to this chief. So what happens is the, our our Osage men, especially in history, even Thomas Jefferson writes about it, but there were these big, statuesque, strapping men, and there was no way that they were going to fit into this European-size military coat. And so they took it home and they gave it to their daughters. And so I love the way that Jackie says this best, but she always says that there's this rebellious nature about it because they took something that was to show power and might over us and these women and their families when these girls would get married would take that and we would put ourselves in that we would put our own ribbons and our own ribbon work and buttons and different things that people had and families would gather together and these were all to be given away as gifts to people who had helped you with your wedding and these would be arranged marriages these were you did not marry who you loved then you were these were arranged for you and so when they came to underneath the arbor for this wedding, you would have this woman coming in and the man that was marrying her knew that he was marrying someone of great prominence because they clearly had a chief or a councilman in their family and that had been given to them as a gift. And so that's the history of basically why they wore those wedding coats. And as it passed down in tradition, and a lot of those meetings 
dissipated. Families then got together. As they do today, we still use those coats, but not for weddings. It's for something called passing of the drum. But for Molly, they get together, the whole family, and starts putting together these wedding coats. And a lot of times you'll see seven to eight and what we refer to as bridesmaids, but that's not how we looked at it culturally. And so you have these different gifts that you're going to be giving to these different people. And all of these are going to be given away, including to some of the girls that may be in the wedding and their family was instrumental in helping you put this wedding on. So Jackie, as a costume designer, when you get you know, you have this historical detail, you have a scene this large with this many people, what kind of gift is it to have something that beautiful and ornate to work with for a scene like this? Well, it was a gift. And what I learned early on when I started my research on the Osage, one of the first things I found was this wedding coat, and I'd never seen anything like it. But as I started digging deeper, I realized so much of the Osage clothing and what they wore was so unique from other uh, Plains nations that I portrayed in other movies through wardrobe. And the wedding coat, I'd never seen anything like it. And that's when I started researching it. And at, at first, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I, I can't do that. How am I going to show that to Marty? It's so over the top. You know, I've never seen any kind of Native person in that. Then when I learned the history and the beauty of it, I got sold on it. And when I showed him, he loved it. And, you know, it becomes all seen in the movie, but it's the history that I think behind it that's so brilliant. And how so many of the trade items got incorporated into it, French ribbon and German silver, uh, braid, uh, buttons, the beadwork, uh, and then incorporated into that coat are all the other accessories, like the finger-woven belt, the ribbon work, all the woodland embroidery, and everyone was different. So for me, it was the most probably the most fun I had on the movie, creating those coats with, I have a brilliant uh, cutter fitter that I've done a lot of movies with, Rosalie Lee. She came down from Canada. Uh, Leo helped me get her in because she'd done all his clothes on The Revenant. And she's just so brilliant. And she had a brilliant workroom. And she made every single coat very, very different and unique to each sister, each bridesmaid. And then Julie helped so incredibly with, that's when the 10 day thing was not going to work. And I said, <laughs> I said, 10 days, I need her through the whole movie. Um, she got every great artisan. You told me that on day nine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, every incredible artisan involved in this project that you saw up there. Um, and she calls it kitchen art, but it's these women who traditionally, it's the traditions passed down from mothers and aunts down to their daughters and their granddaughters. And uh, they did all the beadwork, all the ribbon work, and it made them part of telling of this seminal story for the Osage. They could all get involved and be part of it. And when they saw it in the theater, I hope they are always going to be proud that they worked on it. Marty was really drawn to the whole wedding as well. My wrap gift from him was a hand-painted um, rendering or model of a Sicilian horse cart. Because if you and look it up, just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> you have um, a lot of great wrap gifts. This <laughs> is Apparently it was in the background of Mean Streets. I've, I've watched the movie again to look for it and I can't find it, but it was somewhere <laughs> dressed in, in Mean Streets. But it's this beautiful wood-carved horse draw, pulling this this cart that would be used for, for weddings, for um, different ceremonial things in Sicily. And the horses would have these really large, ornate plumes on the top of their head that looked actually a lot like the wedding hats. Mm bright colors and marty said it had a special significance to him because he said had he been a boy born in sicily he would have grown up being one of the painters of that, those carts because there were the stories those um the pictures painted on these sicilian carts were kind of the way that you would have been a filmmaker back in old sicily before cameras 
Wow. So it was, um, yeah, that was a really sweet gift to get. And, you know, when I saw it and went and wrapped it and looked at it, it's like, wow, just immediately it reminded me of the wedding scene. And Marty said that's why he chose it. Why, um, he chose to give me that because of how much he felt like how much he felt of his own um, culture, yeah. reminiscent of what he was seeing with Osage as well. Um, two very story based and like proper, but you know, expressive and bright and beautiful and just rich cultures. Yeah. So that was, that was cool. There were so many people involved as actors and characters in this film whose relatives had been part of the reign of terror. And that was really the beauty of it. One of the scenes that gave me chills is one Julie mentioned. We were produced from a panoramic photo. I even got, I made 20, 22 sections, sent those to Pendleton in Oregon, and they reproduced every blanket from that original original panoramic shot of the Osage Nation traveling to Washington, D.C. to do something about the murders during the Reign of Terror. And when we shot that at the railroad station that Jack built in Pahuska, I got chills because so many people there came up to me and said, you know, uh, my grandfather was part of that group, or my my great aunt was part of the group. And they all got to be in it and be part of it. And it just, that scene really brought tears to my eyes when I realized how many people were involved in this story that got to be in this movie. And, and the, in the roundhouse scene also, Julie, the, those were real uh, those are there were a lot of people that in that roundhouse scene that had members of their family that were on council at that time. So there were several people that were in that, including like the Shackelford brothers and just different people within the community. And the one thing, yes, and the red corns. Well, there's one thing I really um, in the scene that we saw with the man that was marrying Molly and Ernest as a a gentleman named Tolly Redcorn. And I was driving around in my car on a sa- Saturday, and I used to go through all of the transfer pictures to look through everything on Sundays. And I get this text over my uh, little screen, and it's from the producer, Marianne Bauer, who did a lot of really fabulous research on this from Marty's team, and also Jacqueline. And it said, we have a new character in a new scene. What would a leader wear? And so I came back to them and said, have you ever visited the Immaculate Conception Church in Pahuska? And because it was COVID, no one had gone. Well, when I was growing up, and I was a brownie, I would go to the Catholic churches where they would hold our little meetings. But the windows that are in there, Osage has put a lot of money into that church. And so they have these magnificent German stained glass windows. And there's a whole story about that on its own, where they had to be buried in World War I under the Danube River when things were being bombed, and then brought them back out, and then shipped them to Oklahoma. But they're spectacular. But there's one window that they have that's the only window in the world that has actual indigenous people in it that are the same likeness, because there's always faces of angels and different people within all of the stained glass that you see, but they're never actual likenesses of people. Well, they went to get the Pope's dispensation exactly at the same time that the story was taking place. So in that window is the actual likeness of Chief Bonnie Castle. There is a Chief Bacon Rhine that's in there. And there are their wives and several of these people on council members that would have been there at the time that this story took place. And they're in that window. So I took a screenshot off my phone and sent it over and said, this is Chief Bacon Rhine. And I I think it would be a good idea if your workroom created this exact image in this silk green shirt. He has mascal beans. He was part of Native American church also. You can see it in the pectoral cross that he has on. He's a leader. You can tell it in the otter cap with the medallion that you see. He's holding a eagle wing fan, and he's blessing Molly and Ernest with that fan, which is used in our ceremonies. Everything about him 
was replicated. And when we, when I saw it for the first time, it was so moving because as a child, I loved staring at that when I would finish with my projects. I would ask to go into the church and sit and look at it because it was so beautiful. And I saw it come to life on the screen. And it just, to me, the whole scene is spectacular. Um, Well, Julie and Jackie and Lily, thank you guys so much for joining us here. Thank you all for being here and making this first ever Live Little Goldman possible. Um, Thank you to Apple and uh, everybody else. And we'll see you guys outside. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.